0: This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars.
1: Radio, transmission. The handle, or name you adopt, should be one of a kind, based on something special in your life.
0: This is Porky Chedrook on March 12, 1973.
2: White, land. All you nice people living in the middle of America, the beautiful.
3: Everything is beautiful.
2: We're talking about
3: radio. Radio meaning you do not see the picture. You hear the voice, hear something called the Vox Humana, hear the human voice. But the point is radio, involved the audience far more than television ever did. This is WJAK, Monday, March 12th, 1973. Thank you, and here's some more hit music. It's 820 now, people, this is Big Jack. On our way to Canaan land, here we
0: go. There are those innovations that everyone loves and depends on. Your biggies, like computers, electricity, the printing press. And then there are the innovations that made you who you are. Punk rock music, photocopiers, cassettes, nunchucks. But if I were to rank them, I think the two most important technological innovations to my life are broadcasting and home sound recording. And today I have two of my favorite stories from two of my favorite indie productions all about the early days of broadcasting and recording. Radiotopian's Radio Diaries and the Kitchen Sisters represent the best of what we can achieve in audio storytelling, and here they are tackling the subjects that are near and dear to my heart. These pieces were first broadcast on NPR as part of the Kitchen Sisters Lost and Found sound series. First up, with his story of Conrad's garage and the birth of commercial broadcasting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, this is Joe Richman from Radio Diaries, produced in 2001.
2: The sounds that came out of Frank Conrad's garage in 1919 and 1920 are gone. There were no recordings made, and everyone who participated in those weekly broadcasts has died. In fact, there may be only one person still alive who actually heard what was going on in that garage a man named Harry Mills. This is K4HU. Hello, Harry. K4HU, W1HVA.
3: Hello, Charlie. W1HVA. Here's K4HU. How are you this evening? I'm pretty good. I'm a little
2: sleepy. Harry Mills is 94 years old. He was an engineer for RCA most of his life, but for the last eight decades, he's been going on the ham radio just about every day. Mills first discovered radio in 1919, he was 12 years old, and his parents bought him a copy of the Boy Scout handbook.
3: In the book, after a lot of the camping and the setting up a tent in the rain and helping the old lady cross the street and so on, in the back was a chapter on how to build a wireless station. I had never heard of such a thing, so I built one. I'll show you how it works. It was built out of photograph plates and tinfoil, the condenser, and this is... Weather stripping and uh, this is a Ford coil, Ford ignition coil, which would hook onto your antenna and you're on the air.
2: This is what radio sounded like when Mills first started, the dots and dashes of Morse code.
3: That's the letter V, which you use for test purposes. If he hears me, he'd come back and we'd hold a conversation, as simple as that.
2: Almost every night, Harry Mills would lie in his bed and listen to the amateur radio operator's signal back and forth. Then one night, he heard something different.
3: I remember it was 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and all at once, this voice appears. And I remember letting out a yelp or shout of some sort, and my dad, who had had just gotten out of the bath, come in wrapped in a towel to be sure I was all right. Something hadn't happened to me. And I said, Dad, look, I'm hearing this fellow talking and uh, we shared the headphones, we only had one pair of headphones, and he allowed us, I was right.
2: Harry Mills had stumbled onto the experimental transmissions coming from Frank Conrad's garage, 35 miles away.
3: He was talking, and he says, now I'm going to play a phonograph record, and he did. It was astounding. I, I didn't know he could do that. To begin with, I hadn't heard voice before, and as I had
4: that to music, it opens up a whole new world.
2: Frank Conrad was not the first person to talk and play music on the radio. Inventors like Reginald Fessenden, Lee de Forest, and Marconi had been doing such experiments as early as 1906. But back then, radio was seen as a method of one-to-one communication, like the telegraph. Few envisioned radio as a way to reach many people at the same time, to broadcast. Frank Conrad was among the first to use the word broadcasting, It was originally an agricultural term used to describe the distribution of seeds over a large area. In his garage, Conrad helped to change the concept of radio, and he did it largely by accident.
5: Testing, testing, testing one, two, three, test one, two, three. This is Frank Conrad from the garage. This is what it would have sounded like anyway.
2: It's probably fair to say that nobody cares more about Frank Conrad's garage than a man named Rick Harris. Harris is an amateur historian who has dedicated his life to preserving and researching the history of that garage. He's collected replicas of the equipment Conrad used, a microphone made out of the top of a candlestick telephone mounted in a small box stuffed with cotton, and a hand-cranked Victrola.
5: You turn the crank...
2: Rick Harris says the story of Frank Conrad's garage really begins with that Victrola. Conrad was an engineer for Westinghouse, so he had access to vacuum tubes, which allowed him to transmit his voice over the air. But at the time, Conrad wasn't thinking about broadcasting. He was simply trying to test and improve his transmitting equipment.
5: The problem was his voice, after talking endless hours into the microphone, would wear out, so... He got the idea one day to put on a record that would give him two or three minutes to adjust his equipment and would save his voice. This one is an ancient one, so I don't know what it's going to sound like, though. And as soon as he started playing the music, he began getting requests for more music, and he would get phone calls and letters asking him to play a certain song at a certain time so someone... Listening with their crystal set could convince a relative that you could actually play music over the air. He found very quickly that there was an unseen audience out there.
3: People would call me up at night and ask me to transmit. They want, uh, said they had some friends, wanted to listen to something coming out of the air.
2: This is Frank Conrad, I would recorded in the late 1930s, not long before he died.
3: And they finally got to uh, take care of that I sort of arranged to send the program twice a week, every Wednesday and Saturday night at that time, I actually had no idea what was going to
2: end up and do. Over time, Conrad's garage started to sound more like a radio station. Along with phonograph records, Conrad would transmit piano solos by family members and baseball scores. And then, when he started to run out of records to play, Conrad went to the Hamilton Music Store and asked if he could borrow some for his broadcasts. The owner said yes, as long as Conrad agreed to announce the name of the store on the air. Slowly, Conrad was building the one thing the radio industry hadn't yet thought much about an audience. But the real turning point came on September 29, 1920, when the Joseph Horn department store placed this ad in the Pittsburgh Sun.
4: Air concert picked up by radio here. The music was from a Victrola in the home of Frank Conrad. Mr. Conrad is a wireless enthusiast and puts on the wireless concerts periodically for the entertainment of many people in this district who have wireless sets. Amateur wireless sets are on sale
5: here,
4: $10 and up.
5: The ad really caught the attention of Conrad's boss at Westinghouse, a man by the name of Harry Davis, who, uh, the story goes, called Conrad in the next day and said, essentially, I would like to put you out of business because I would like Westinghouse to set up its own station. And uh, Davis asked Conrad, could that be done? And Conrad said, of course.
2: So, over the next month, Conrad and his team began constructing a wooden shack on the roof of the Westinghouse plant. They built a 100-watt transmitter. And at 6 p.m. on the night of November 2, 1920, the newly licensed station, KDKA, went on the air.
3: This is KDKA of the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company in East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We shall now broadcast the election returns.
2: The station launched by broadcasting the returns of the Harding-Cox presidential election. There were no recordings of that broadcast, but in the late 1930s, the original announcer, Leah Rosenberg, made this recreation.
3: We'd appreciate it if anyone hearing this broadcast would communicate with us, as we are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching and how it is being received. Well, nobody ever heard of such a thing before. You had to wait till the next day to find out who won the election.
2: Harry Mills, who was 13 by this time, remembers going down to the local newspaper where they had set up a receiving station.
3: Somebody would sit at the receiver and a crowd gathered outside or a number of people and they would watch these returns being updated as the numbers came in bigger. The next day in the newspaper, of course, the talk was, gee, for the first time ever, people were able to get the reports before the newspaper was printed.
6: I think it's very difficult for us today to imagine really quite what a magical moment this
2: was. Susan Douglas is a professor at the University of Michigan and the author of Inventing American Broadcasting. She says the KDKA election broadcast was a watershed event. And
6: because there were no connecting wires, because uh, this uh, there was this concept of the ether, there was kind of a cosmic connection for people. It was a, a quasi sort of spiritual event that these voices were coming out of the air into your home.
2: And two weeks after that first transmission, Westinghouse introduced the first radio for the general public, the Ariola Junior, which sold for $25. The broadcasting boom had begun, and over the next few years, radio would move out of the garage and into the living room.
4: Sounds wonderful.
1: It's KDKA Pittsburgh. Wherever you go.
2: Today, KDKA is considered the oldest radio station in the country. History has not been as kind to Frank Conrad's garage. This fall, bulldozers began to clear the site it will soon be a Wendy's. The bulldozers destroyed Conrad's house, but Rick Harris and a group of supporters called the Conrad Project managed to save the garage, piece by piece.
5: The woodwork, all of the doors, the windows, and some 25,000 or so bricks, the ones that uh, survived anyway. I don't know, It's, it's just the more I learn about Frank Conrad and what he did and... The fact that he's virtually unknown outside of Pittsburgh, just something, it feels that he's been overlooked for what he did.
2: Someday, Harris hopes to reconstruct Conrad's garage and turn it into a museum. Frank Conrad may have helped to launch the modern broadcasting industry, but that wasn't really his vision. Conrad was just a talented engineer tinkering late at night in his garage, trying to connect to people through the air. And that pretty well describes what 94-year-old Harry Mills is still doing every night at 10 o'clock.
3: W1UEA, here's K4HU. Thank you, Guy. Yes, I'm reading you very well.
2: After all this time, Harry Mills says he still feels the same way he felt when he first heard Frank Conrad's voice coming out of the radio.
3: To me, it's, it's difficult to describe the fascination of it. I know, I use it all the time. How does it happen? Can't see the fella. No wires going from here to there. But you can talk to him. It was a, a phenomenon that interested me from the beginning. I, I presume it's safe to say that that has... I've never gotten over it. So with that, I'm going to say good night. Thanks for the uh, use of your loudspeaker. Oh, good night, Bob, and good night, guy. W1TRFK4HU. Okay, very good. Good night, Harry. Uh, good night, guy. W1TRF. Good night, all. W1UE.
0: Conrad's Garage was produced by Joe Richman of Radio Diaries in 2001 for the Lost and Found sound series. Harry Mills, who was featured in that piece, died in 2008. Conrad's Garage is still a pile of loose bricks in storage, awaiting its final resting place as a museum. So, someday, someday, we hope you'll be able to see it for yourself. So, here's the deal Radio Diaries has a podcast that's part of Radiotopia, and recently their stories were featured on This American Life and Planet Money. And Joe Richmond offhandedly said to me when we were talking about today's show, We'll see if you promoting the Radio Diaries podcast on 99% Invisible will result in more Radio Diaries subscribers than Planet Money or TAL. Now, I don't know if you know this about me, but I am extremely competitive. And so I need everyone hearing my voice to subscribe to the Radio Diaries podcast right now. Here's the thing. You'll get short fortnightly stories that'll blow your mind. Radio Diaries will reach more people than ever, and I'll get to demonstrate the power of this fully operational battle station. Everyone wins, except Planet Money in this American life. They're going to lose. So you got it? Subscribe now. It's important. Ira's watching. Now I don't want to push my luck here, but there's another podcast that you'll want to subscribe to right now that equally deserves to rocket up the podcast charts. It's called Fugitive Waves from the Kitchen Sisters. And if you require proof of why you need to subscribe to another podcast, well, then I have the perfect story for you. This is probably... One of the top ten radio stories of all time. It was first broadcast on NPR's All Things Considered in 2004. The hosting by Noah Adams and Robert Siegel is really integrated into the story, so I decided to present it as
4: is.
1: This is NPR's All Things Considered.
0: No, it's
4: not.
1: I'm Robert Siegel,
4: and I'm Noah Adams. What's up, guys? Each week, we begin our Lost and Found sound series with this theme. It's called Music in Marble Halls. This improvised duet of clarinet and high heels crossing a Manhattan office lobby was recorded in 1962 by New York audio legend Tony Schwartz, one of the most original and eccentric sound gatherers of the century.
1: It was 1945 when Tony Schwartz first stepped out of his apartment with a microphone to capture the sounds of his neighborhood. Now, more than 50 years later, Tony Schwartz has amassed one of the largest and most eclectic collections of recorded sound in
4: the world. The Kitchen Sisters, producers Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, visited Tony in his midtown basement studio, where he's surrounded by tape recorders, Mixing consoles, awards, photographs, and row upon row of audio tapes. Their story, Tony Schwartz, 30,000 recordings later, looks at the legacy of a man who has spent his life exploring and influencing the world through recorded sound, beginning with a work called New York 19.
6: New York 19 was the non-commercial musical life of my postal zone, and the postal zone was New York 19 at that time. It's 10019 now. That was the area I could travel in. I'm not able to travel far. I have agoraphobia, and in walking I could just go around my postal zone in the midst of Manhattan. I made the first portable tape recorder. I brought the VU meter from inside the case to the top so I could look down at it and see how loud things were. I put a strap on it so I could have it over my shoulder. That was
3: 1945. I
6: could go record children in the park doing jump rope rhymes, and I recorded the street festivals. I made 14 records for Folkways Records. You can see them up there. The children's games of the streets. I called it one, two, three, and a zing, zing, zing. I was interested in the sound around us.
3: Two things that you're not allowed to carry in taxi cab. one is fish. The other is bedding. That goes I on had the a mic. wrist
6: mic. I had a brush lapel mic, and I would put it on a wristwatch band, and I'd pull it out my sleeve. So I would just walk around and record that way. Like when I went into the pawn shop and I did cab drivers, that way I recorded about seven, 800 cab drivers.
3: Do away with your parking lots in mid from 14th Street to 59th Street. No parking allowed in the daytime, only after 6 o'clock. There's your I
6: had recorded the songs on jukeboxes in the restaurants or bars that catered to the various groups around my postal zone. What I would do is get people in the restaurant who spoke English to come over and translate it for me.
3: The country in which I was born is suffering many, many uh, bad economic things even though I'll feel terrible there. In my country, there are always flowers. That is my paradise. I won't change Puerto Rico by 60 New York. I won't change Puerto Rican chickens by frozen chickens in the ice boxes here. This is Max Nichols of Peter Marisburg Natal, South Africa calling tony schwartz of new york usa hello tony schwartz i'm bringing you greetings from pittsburgh pennsylvania this is a Greek folk song from island of Krita. hello tony my name is thomas Knott and i come from Kalani, County Kerry, island
6: when i got my first wire recorder i asked the company if they would give me the guarantee slips from people from all over the world and all over this country who bought the recorders who said they were buying them because of their interest in music. And I would exchange wires with people in other countries who were interested in folk music and they would send me material from their countries. My name is
1: Tony Schwartz. The music you hear is a Peruvian Indian playing his guitar on a quiet summer evening. This is one of 15,000 recordings I've collected. Recordings of folk music and folklore. Recordings I've exchanged with people all over the world.
3: Hello, Tony. I received your letter here the other day. Well, I'm gonna send you a wire now. This stuff that I generally do, you know, singing the cowboy stuff. I don't know you fellas New York City appreciate this kind of music Uh, we folks around here do, this hillbilly stuff.
1: That's how it started. Uh, Recordings came in from all parts of the United States, from all parts of the world. Recordings on wire, recordings on tape. One of my exchanges was with a man who wanted sounds he no longer heard. Tony, I wonder if you'd do me a favor. I live out in the country, and originally I came from the city, and uh, I kind of miss it. And I was wondering if you would record some sounds of the city and send them out to me. I'd, I'd really like to hear it. How about it? Part of my answer was recorded in Times Square. A week later, I found this in my mailbox. <laughs> Tony, I uh, received your sounds of the city this morning and uh, I've been playing them ever since. I noticed that uh, you said that you recorded them about 8.30 at night, to sort of reciprocate, here's the sounds of my country, 8.30 at night. The voices and music of the world came into my apartment in New York City, and I traveled no further than my mailbox.
6: In people talking, there's an innate musicality in, in the way certain people speak and also in the barkers at nightclubs or various places. The Sound of Selling used to be the people vendors going by in the street or people singing in the backyard or shouting in the backyard. Now it's over the radio or television. I did a whole record on the Sound of Selling. Vegetable men shouting, apples, apples on the street. That horse and wagon selling vegetables.
3: My mule is white. My charcoal is black. I sell my charcoal.
6: There to were be men the who would black. go around buying old clothes Chocolate. and they'd yell, I cash clothes, I cash clothes. Choco,
3: Choco. It was February 3rd, 1956, when Tony Schwartz appeared at the information desk of the animal shelter to ask for a dog. The attendant will take you into the adoption ward in Ward A. You look the dogs over and if there's anything you select, you tell them that's the dog you want. These are obedience-trained dogs working toward degrees. Which, of course, that's like receiving a college diploma.
6: I did a radio program on sound once a week on WNYC for over 35 years. I would do it on any subject that came up to me during the week. Good morning.
1: Every year for the last 13 years, I've been presenting the story and sound of the growth of my niece. We've all heard of time lapse photography. Well, I'm going to apply this technique to the growth of my niece Nancy in sound. 13 years condensed into 2 minutes and 13 seconds. Here goes. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of
3: water.
1: Jack fell down and broke, and Jill came tumbling.
6: I would record the sound of my daughter growing up. I have her first cries after being born. I had a microphone over her bed and a recorder in our bedroom. And any time I heard her beginning to wake up or anything, I could turn on the recorder and record the sound of her waking up.
1: Tony, if the dog makes... Willie in house. If he's ha, if you have to make him house broken, if he makes Willie in in the apartment, you have to slap him with a the newspaper. Then if he doesn't do it again, he's housebroken. What do you think of the Russians sending the dog up in the satellite? Well, I hope he doesn't get hurt. But if he does, I'm sure they'll send up a medical satellite.
6: Uh, black woman. Well, um, was working as a nurse for her child. And when she'd go home at night, I'd take her out to get a cab to go up to Harlem. If she'd hail a cab, they wouldn't stop for her. Blacks couldn't get taxis. To pick them up, and I interviewed cabs drivers why they don't like to go to Harlem, and I put that in the program. It's all girls. You'll mess
5: my hair, and it's very special for tonight. It's just the way I want it. It's in a page boy with a high top, and that's the way I like it. I'm taking guitar lessons, and that's fun. I take drama lessons after school, and that's great. And I've been working on the school newspaper. I might be editor next next year. And I've been discovering boys.
6: How did I come to these ideas? Just from being human and working with sound and knowing how sound affected me and affected other people. Here lies Tony Cherney. Once a pet turtle, of Daryl Cherney. Died February 24,
1: 1964. Who died? My
6: turtle, Tony. He got a sore shell, and he tried to save him by giving him hamburger, but he died, and we're going to bury him. How do you feel about it? Not too well. Sort of a tragedy for me. I'm going to play taps, and the flag is because I like him. Just like the President of the United States when he died, except, uh, but he's like in my family. Hey, give me the turtle life come to me
0: my melancholy baby
1: cuddle up and don't be blue can,
3: can a baby feel blue
1: anybody can feel blue all your fears are foolish fancies maybe
6: well, I was born at the beginning of Time. Time magazine started the year I was born. Harry Belafonte was a bop singer when I met him. I got him into the Jamaican songs.
5: This is another working song. It is the banana loading song.
1: day.
6: I met a woman who was a cashier at Macy's, and her name was Louise Bennett, and she knew all the Jamaican folklore, and I played those songs to Harry Belafonte. I got from a nightclub in Africa songs like Way. remember that? And Everybody Loves Saturday Night. We Way I gave to the Weavers. And uh, Everybody Loves Saturday Night I gave to, what's his name? He owns a casino in Atlantic City. He used to be a singer. He also, I watched Jeopardy on television. You ever watch that? And who is the guy that is the plunder of it? Merv Griffin, I gave him, Everybody Loves Saturday Night.
1: Good morning. Today, I'd like to play two beautiful songs sung by Paul Robeson.
6: I think he was one of the great singers of our time. In the McCarthy era, Robeson couldn't travel because they called him a communist, which is ridiculous, he wasn't a communist. He just believed in internationalism. He wanted to send tapes to various places around the world. One I did to send to England for a speech for him. It was about peace, so I had his song behind it. Then I had his narration over that. Peace and friendship with our great wartime ally, and enduring peace growing out of united United Nations, out of friendship with the Soviet people. I did it for many people who couldn't travel. For W.E.B. Du Bois, I would uh, record speeches that he wanted to give in South Africa.
3: Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois of New York, writer and president of the Pan-African Congress, to the peoples of Africa, greeting.
6: Then, when the Hollywood Ten were supposed to go to jail for being un-American, and many of them had made movies that I
3: loved,
6: I recorded all of them the night before they went to jail. Dalton Trumbo telling what he was accused of.
1: How did they treat you in front of this committee?
3: I mean, the, the committee was anti-Semitic, anti-labor, anti-Negro, pro-war and had been denounced by everyone from Roosevelt down over the
6: ridiculousness of this McCarthy era you know he started the whole thing of loyalty oaths most people think of evil as the sounds of gunfire or thunder or lightning or something I found and believe that the most evil sounds in the world are the sounds out of mouths of people I've used media to shame people into proper behavior. In primitive cultures, if someone did something shameful and word of mouth got around the village in an hour or so, in our culture... The same thing exists. But if you divide the distance of our country into the speed of sound, you find it would take a 64th of a second to reach across the country by telephone, radio, television, or anything like that. I did a commercial with the Pope against nuclear weapons. I've been against nuclear weapons since 1939. One thing I've done was the daisy spot for President Johnson. I was working on sound for six or seven commercials in the campaign against Barry Goldwater. One of them was a little girl counting down and picking the petals off a daisy. Then there's the countdown. And then the bomb goes off.
3: the stakes, to make a world in which all of God's children can live, or to go into the dark. We must either love each other, or we must die.
1: What would you say to young people who smoke? I would say that
3: they're very foolish, even to consider it. I had to have my voice box (laughs) removed. I have a hole in my throat. That's
6: what I, I teach through. a course for I NYU. I, right. I also for teach media and public health, and health and at Harvard. Both places come here. Up. I have that's agoraphobia. That's I don't right. travel. I'm not able to travel. I have used the telephone to teach all over the world, in Sweden, in Japan, in South America, uh, Australia. My brother built a one-tube radio, which never worked, and I used to go up in the attic and play a spaceship like Jack Armstrong. I was also interested in physics, and the physics teacher was interested in amateur radio, and I first built my own receivers and huge 20-meter antennas, and I built my own little shack where I had a 16 by 16, and I had my radio station in the front, my bed in the back, and I ran a telephone line up to the house so my mother could call me in for supper. I made up a shortwave listener cards. I speak to them on the radio, and I would tell them how they're coming in. I think the most important thing we can work on in communication is to make the world safer for the people who live in it. People, that's what I was most interested in. People and their, their life and
4: what they do
3: leave you me, as long
6: as you
4: live. Tony Schwartz, 30,000 recordings later, was produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davy Nelson and Nikki Silva, with help from Tim Burby, Nina Ellis, and Jim Anderson. Mixed by Jim McKee at Earwax Productions in San Francisco. This week, Lost and Found Sound thanks Rena Schwartz, Gabriel Lewis, and stations KQED and WNYC.
0: Tony Schwartz died in 2008. You can still buy his amazing recordings on iTunes. They're worth every penny. You should get them. Thanks to the Kitchen Sisters for introducing me to him. Nikki Silva and Davian Nelson are total heroes to me. Their podcast is essential listening. It's called Fugitive Waves. 99% Invisible is Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from the brand new and already dedicated listeners to radio diaries and fugitive waves and from Hover. The best way to buy and manage domain names. So, when Autodesk and I were planning to mount the San Francisco flag redesign, right after the first meeting, we gathered around the computer and bought sanfranciscoflag.com from Hover. And buying that domain was the moment when this little idea started to become real, and I'm addicted to that feeling. After buying the domain, it's all hard work, blood, sweat, and tears, but for that moment on Hover.com, before the pain of starting a project, Your world-changing idea is a joyful, uncomplicated dream that is now conjured into reality with the perfect name. Make your dreams manifest on Hover.com and new customers can use the offer code RADIO and I'll save you 10%. Support is also provided by Basecamp. Basecamp is the project management app for people who want total control over their projects. Basecamp helps you wrangle people with different roles, responsibilities, and objectives toward a common goal, finishing a project together. Basecamp runs in the cloud on their secure servers so you don't have to mess with anything technical from freelancers to small shops to mid-sized companies to enormous multinationals. Basecamp is the go-to project management tool for hundreds of thousands of groups worldwide. Over 15 million people have used Basecamp at work or for their own personal projects. Listeners to 99% Invisible can try Basecamp for two months absolutely free by visiting basecamp.com 99pi. And finally, we are made possible this week and every week by Tiny Letter. Email for people with something to say. My boy Carver always has something to say. What do you got to say, Carver?
6: This summer, I'm excited to go to New Jersey, Scotland, and Scotland. I'm going to see the Wallace Monument and the Sterling Castle.
0: Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter from the great people behind MailChimp. MailChimp, the Knight Foundation, and people just like you helped us create Radiotopia from PRX. Recently in Radiotopia, the truth imagined a perfect world where machines took over all the jobs. The Heart explored the history of going west, but not going straight. And Fugitive Waves goes back to 1981 for the story that really created the Kitchen Sisters as we know them. That's a real treat to hear. Subscribe to all of them and find out more about all of Radiotopia at Radiotopia.fm. You can keep up with all the goings-on at 99PI on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, and Spotify. I have a TED Talk that I think you'll like. If you're in the Bay Area, I'm hosting Office Hours with Helen Zaltzman of The Illusionist on Thursday, June 4th. And a bunch of your favorite podcasters are going to be around here for the Macopolis Audio Festival this weekend. But if you are not lucky enough to be in the yay, you can always hang out at our place at 99PI.org. Radiotopia.